Father, we just thank you for your word. And God, just as it speaks to us, just being guided by the Holy Spirit. God, we think this morning, we just pray that you be with Bill and Patty as they continue to pray through all that they need, they, they need to pray through. God, we just think of those in the church that need healing. And we lift them up to you. You know them by name. They're your sons and daughters. And so we lift them up to you to just be able to watch over them. And if it be your will, to just reach down and touch them and heal them. God, we just pray that you be with Jeannie and Bob as they continue to pack and get ready to move. And God, we just thank you for such a godly couple that's been part of this church. And as they move north, that um, just bring good friends and family around them to just uh, fill the hole that they will be leaving here. And so, God, we pray you be with them. Continue to keep them healthy. God, just be with us again with this morning as we look at your word. Help us to be true to it, to understand it, and to take it and go out into the world and share your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what does it take to share the good news? Some of us get really nervous when when we have to do that. What does it take when we have to share the good news? Or what was God's intent on choosing Jews as the chosen people in the Old Testament? Were Jews the only ones that could know the one true God? And how do we as Christians, this is important, how do we as Christians harm our own testimony? And actually, believe it or not, a lot of this is all in chapter 5. That's what I really liked about it when we covered it not too long ago. So so these are just a few questions that I hope we can answer as we go through today and this morning. Uh, But we'll see examples from the Old Testament. Those that come to know the one true God, even though they've been raised and steeped in false gods and idol worship, they came to know the one true God. So we also... We can see how someone that knows the one true God can be a poor testimony. And that's something we should always be on our guard about. But first, we need to look at a little bit of history at this point to kind of bring you up to where we are. Uh, just to kind of give you a point of reference. Because uh, Monday nights we've been studying First and Second Kings. Actually, we, I think we started First and Second Samuel and we just moved right into First and Second Kings. And we're in Second Kings now. Um, and so just to kind of give you a little review, the people had demanded a king. So God initially gave them King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And that didn't work out so well. Then David was raised up and he advanced to the throne. And David um, was able to secure the land. He was a mighty warrior. Uh, but he was not allowed to build the temple that was reserved for his son Solomon, who was the next king of Israel. And he was able to build the temple. After Solomon dies, the kingdom splits. And we have the northern kingdom known as Israel and the southern kingdom known as Judah. And Jeroboam was set up by God to be the king in the northern kingdom. And it was referred to as Israel. And Rehoboam was the king in the southern kingdom. And that was known as Judah. And kind of have to keep a scorecard when you go through first and second kings the way it keeps talking about all the different kings and everything that's going on i have a sheet that i've stuck in my bible that tells me what king was king when and and what prophets were uh, ministering during that time um so before we go on i want to have a little test is this working john Okay, well, I'll ask you the questions. We'll show you the slides later because if I show you the slides, you're going to know the answers. So, how many kings were in the northern kingdom? Nineteen. How many good kings were in the northern kingdom? Zero. None. None. They all did evil in the sight of the Lord. How many kings in the southern kingdom? I'll give you a hint. One more than the northern kingdom. Twenty. How many good kings in the southern kingdom? There are actually seven. Some people count more because they say they were kind of good. I don't go with that. I go, 
Um, and then there were some that, that did try to restore the law on that, and they were, they were pretty good, but not quite. So there is a debate. Uh, but most of when I was researching this to kind of make sure I leaned towards seven. Uh, but there were three outstanding. You're right, Karen. There were three outstanding kings in the south. So you might be saying, what is the difference between a good king and a bad king? Well, the good kings tried to follow the law. They did the things that God wanted them to do, that the covenants that they set out that they would do with God. They were good kings. And... Normally things would go well when they were in charge because they were doing what God would want them to do. But Israel and eventually Judah got steeped in false God and idol worship. I mean, it was really severe. And this happened in the north and the south. So, again, we've been studying First and Second Kings on Monday night at Buzz and Connie's. And we've seen Elijah show the power of God. There we go. There's my plug for Monday night. You can join us at Buzz and Connie's. Uh, we have room. We meet at 7 p.m. And uh, let's say right now we're only in chapter 8. So uh, if you feel like joining us, we would really welcome you. But we have been studying First and Second Kings on Monday night. And just some of the things that we looked at. And this is actually one of my, my favorite parts of Kings where it's talking about Elijah. And when he called down the fire uh, from heaven. And here's what it says. 1 Kings 18, 32 to 39. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. About 13 quarts. He arranged the wood. Cut the bowl into pieces. And laid it on the wood. Then he said to them. Fill four, four large jars with water. And pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time. And he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar, even filled the trench. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And I love this line. Then the fire fell. The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And what was going on right before this is the prophets Baal, they had been worshiping all day and calling on him and asking him to show a sign and uh, cutting themselves. And I think even Pastor Bill said that they wanted to know if he was out going to the bathroom because he wasn't answering. Um, And so in just a short period of time, Elijah comes up and God shows his power and does this. To me, that's exciting. I mean, my wife and I always talk about when you see movies about the Old Testament, why they have to glor- why they have to add to them or anything, because there's so much in the Old Testament that they would just make great movies if you just take the text just as it is. So we do get to see Elijah turn his ministry over to Elisha, and uh, Elijah goes off in a chariot of fire, and we see that in Second Kings uh, chapter two, verse eleven. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Wow, what a spectacle. And Elisha got to see that. And there's just a few other things that we've seen while we've been in Second Kings. We've seen an iron axe head float. Have you ever seen an iron axe head float? I haven't. Uh, ample oil's been supplied, food. Uh, and some raised from the dead. And we're only in chapter 8, which we'll cover Monday. Uh, so feel free to join us. There's another plug for Monday night. <laughs> so Elijah, Elijah's turned his position over to Elisha, and he's whisked off. Then we see Elijah through God's power. Through We see things like he purifies water at Jericho. We see, we see some youth who jeer Elisha. And it's talking about that they jeered Elisha and they're really jeering God. Um, 
So you should tell the youth, be very careful when you, when you jeer a man of God. Because it says that they were mauled by bears, 42 of them. We see a widow's oil multiplied so that she could sell it and pay her debt so her sons would not be forced into slavery. Uh, Elisha brings back the life of a Shunammite woman's son. He keeps, a, there's a poisonous stew that he keeps it from killing the men who eat it. And he multiplies bread to feed a hundred men. And all this through the power of God. So Elisha truly, truly was a man of God. He was a prophet of God. And many would have heard what he had done throughout. So this will give us a little picture about First and Second Kings. But I want, like I said, I want to focus on Second Kings chapter 5 this morning. Because I really, when we went through that, and I went back through, it just really gave me a perspective of kind of the, the world today. And the impact that we have, but also people that can be reached for Jesus Christ. So, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, and it was probably Ben-Hadad II. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. This would have been the area of, of Syria. And he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And we see here that Naaman, and his name means gracious, is very, high, very highly thought of. In cred, he's given credit for victories, and it states that through the Lord these victories came. So yes, God can even give victories to other nations besides Israel, as we see in, in, in Kings. But remember... God can use anyone to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. He can use anyone. Outside of this, in chapters, and outside of this chapter in Second Kings, this is the only time we're introduced to Naaman. This one chapter is the only time we see Naaman. But to me, it's so powerful from what we're seeing. So he had leprosy, and in Israel. You know, if he had been Jewish and in Israel had leprosy, he would not be commanding the army. He'd probably be living outside the city because he was un- unclean. And we're not sure to what extent that his leprosy was. I know later on in the chapter it talks about that he had spots. Um, but he was highly respected by the king of Aram or Syria. But he was his commander and he actually had fought you know, wars and won those victories for the king. So he was very highly thought of. Then we read on in Second Kings chapter 5, verses 2 through 3. Now bands from Aram, or Syria, had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, earlier, you know, I'd recap kind of so far, you know, as we come up to Elisha and what he had done through the power of God. And this young girl from Israel, you know, it doesn't say how old she was, but it says she was a young girl from Israel, had been taken captive. And, you know, here she's in a strange land, and she's not familiar. She's been carried off to a strange land. Can you imagine, you know, and I think back, you know, we did the thing on sex trafficking and human trafficking. And there are young girls out there today that are going through that very thing. They are being captured and taken off or seduced and being taken off. And how, you know, how would you feel? I mean, I don't know, but for myself, I would always turn it back on myself and say, woe is me. Woe is me. Why me, God? Why are you doing this to me? Why? Why? But not her. She actually uh, is a slave, but she's working for Naaman's wife. And this young girl obviously knew what had gone on with Elisha. So more importantly, even though Israel was steeped in idol worship and false worship, she knew the one true God because she spoke up. She tells her mistress about the prophet in Israel, and she's confident that Elisha can heal Naaman because he had been looking for a cure. So God took the circumstances of this young girl, even though she had been taken in slavery, to show Naaman the power of the one true God. And it just, to me, it's really interesting to note here that this one slave girl had more faith in God 
than the king of Israel did. Because we'll see as we talk about King Joram, he was the king during a time that no matter what he saw Elisha do or no matter what he saw God do, he always reverted back to worshiping, worshiping false gods. So here you have this young slave girl to me who has more faith in the one true God than the king of Israel does. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 4 and 6, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, which is about 750 pounds, and 6,000 shekels, which was about 150 pounds, of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter... I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. So there was a little misunderstanding there from the king, but we'll see that that gets straightened out. So here we have this mighty commander from from Aram or Syria and goes to the king of Israel and is looking for help. And the king of Aram sends gifts and a letter to make way for Naaman to be healed, thinking that this can be bought, you know, that... The king of Israel can be bought. Hey, here, here's this money. Here's these clothes. Heal my servant Naaman. He's, you know, he's my right-hand man. But we know that's not the case. And then I was thinking 750 pounds. And I was kind of trying to do the math and see what it would take and how many horses to carry 750 pounds. And, and Kim, you can maybe correct me, but it said a standard horse could carry about 20% of its own weight, which is about 200 pounds. And so um, what I found out is that that would have been about six or seven horses that they would have needed just to carry the clothes and the gold and the silver. And um, I know when uh, the last time we were in Lake Tahoe, we went horseback riding. And uh, they told us that they had a weight limit that you could have. So I had to lose weight before I could go horseback riding. So... <laughs> So, because I was over 200 pounds. So, um, and I, I think they had set it at 210 pounds or something like that. It, but just think, you know, that I just wanted to get an idea of what this was, how much it was. And, you know, this is just the horses to carry just the, the gifts that they wanted to give to the king. And then we'll, as we read later, there were other servants and other men that went with Naaman. So... Like I said, this is not just Naaman on his horse. He's heading off to Israel, but this is, he has a group with him. And in verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? So here the king, he's actually seeing the power of God through Elisha. And instead of him immediately thinking, oh, hey, let me get Elisha in here. He can take care of this. No, there's no thought of Elisha. There's no thought of God. You know, even though the king, like I said, he had seen what Elisha could do through God. And, you know, the only thing I can see is there was not a good relationship between Elisha and, and the king. Uh, if we look back in uh, chapter 3, verse 13, um, here's what we read. It says, Elisha had told King Joram, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. There would have been the false prophets. Those would have been the prophets of Baal. Why don't you call on them for help? He's saying, you put so much energy and effort into worshiping these other false gods. Why aren't you calling them for help? So I don't think there was a good relationship there. And I don't know about you, I've been in circumstances where, you know, have you ever had where people come to you and they ask for your advice and you give them good advice, good, sound, godly advice, and what do they do? They do just the opposite. And then they have to come back and kind of humble themselves a little bit and ask again and ask for help and ask for guidance. Um, 
you know, and it gets, it gets frustrating because you sometimes just want to say, leave me alone. Don't come talk to me. I mean, if you're not going to take the advice, you know, this is good godly advice. If you're not going to take the advice, why are you wasting my time? Um, I know my mom, I mean, you've probably seen the bumper stickers that says hire a teenager now where they still think they know everything. Well, that was my mom's attitude towards me because she'll even say today sometimes when we'll be talking about things and she'll say, oh yeah, she said, there's less the know-it-all, you know, because I guess I must've been kind of cocky as a teenager. I, that, that's the impression I get from that. So she still reminds me, even at 92, she still reminds me, so... Uh, but it says he tore his clothes. And this would kind of been of a sign of great anxiety or distress because he knew he could not heal Naaman. He knew, he knew that for a fact. And he was not calling on Elisha and he was not calling on God to help. And so basically what he thought was that this was going to turn into a war. That if he couldn't heal Naaman, that Naaman was going to go back to the king of Iran, Aram and basically since he would not do what they thought he could do, it could turn into a war. So in 2 Kings 5, 8 through 10, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. So Elisha knows what's happened. He sends a messenger to tell the king to send, tell Naaman to come. But the king had not bothered to call Elisha. But Elisha knew. And we read in Amos 3, 7, it says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. So God is preparing this. God is working on Naaman. So, again, we see the prophet of the Lord basically rescuing the king of Israel. And he's done this before as we look back through First and Second Kings over something that really could have possibly started a war. So Elisha sends out a messenger to advise Naaman to come to him. Elisha never leaves his house. Elisha never comes out of the house. He sends out a messenger to speak to Naaman. And I'm not sure if this is Gehazi or not, because as we read on the chapter, we'll read about Gehazi. And Gehazi was uh, Elisha's right-hand man. He kind of took over um, where Elisha was Elijah's right-hand man. Gehazi was was Elisha's right-hand man. We're not sure. It just says he was a messenger. However, so Elijah will not come out, but sends a messenger to tell Naaman to go to the Jordan River and wash seven times. And Elisha gives him a specific number. And basically, and how many times to wash. And I think the reason that that happened is that, so when it did happen, Naaman would know that that was from God. If he had just said, go wash, you know, it might have been, well, maybe the water did it. But this way, he says, go do it seven times. And so he goes and does it seven times. Now, mind, I've never been to the Middle East, but I've been told that the Jordan's a rather muddy river, uh, or was a rather muddy river. And I do know about the Mississippi. You've ever heard of the muddy Mississippi? And it's, you know, it's at times a very fast-moving river. But that, I guess I can kind of picture it at that. In fact, my dad um, was born in Mississippi, and he always said he would never go fishing in the Mississippi River just for the fact that it could swell up so quickly it could sweep you away. Um, he said a storm could come up, and he said, but so that's what I kind of pictured, that the Jordan, you know, being that muddy. Um, so he tells him, go to the Jordan and wash seven times. Now, we know this river has no healing powers. We know that from Scripture. And it would be the obedience to God's word that would heal him. And that's what would heal Naaman was the obedience. And so we see Naaman's response in verses 11 and 12. And I'm sure Naaman just right away said, okay, no problem. I'm just going to go down there and dip myself in there seven times. No, that's not what he said. He says... Second Kings five eleven through 12. But 
And there's that deadly word again. Normally when somebody uses that word but, you got to be careful. Because there's sometimes there's something negative behind it. So I was in sales for a lot of years. And they told me, take that word out of your vocabulary. Take the word out. Because when you say but, there is something negative normally coming. So Naaman went away angry. He says, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hands over the spot. Cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Now there's an old cliche out there. I think you've probably heard it before. And you may even run across some folks that have used it. Perhaps you don't know who I am. I mean, that's kind of the attitude that Naaman had, you know. Um, and I actually did, did some quick looking up on Google to see who's used that recently. This is my, you know, and when people use that on me, my first inclination is I really don't care who you are, you know, <laughs> but I hold my tongue most of the time. So, but here, here's some that's used it recently. Miley Cyrus, Reese Witherspoon. Don't you know what a couple years ago she got arrested telling the cops, don't you know who I am? Uh, Lindsay Lohan. And just so the women won't be outdone, Mike Tyson. And this one really kind of surprised me. David Hasselhoff. I mean, most people would say who? Uh, Alec Baldwin. Yes, he's got a great reputation, doesn't he? Oh, and here's another good one, Kanye West. Yeah, these are all ones that have used, don't you, don't you know who I am? Well, that was kind of the attitude that Naaman had here. He's second command in, in Aram, Aram, and, you know, he's very powerful. He's obviously a, a good soldier, a mighty soldier. And so, you know, he is just incensed that Elisha would not even come out and perform some spectacular ceremony over him to draw attention that he needed to storm. And then he just storms off in a huff. And I know none of us have ever done that. (laughs) Naaman referred to the rivers Abana and Farpar and Damascus. And these were uh, rivers that were fed by the mountains. So the streams would be clean. Um, Some of you know, we just came back from Yosemite and with all the rain and the snow and everything, I mean, the rivers and the streams are just gorgeous. The water is clear. It just, you know, this is kind of what I pictured they would be like. And because we were there just a couple of years ago and I mean, there was nothing. And so with the snow and everything, and even in Tahoe, like Lake Tahoe is still, it's just beautiful. The water is just gorgeous. And so... You know, this is kind of what I pictured the rivers would be like. Um, So, you know, here Naaman's feeling like he's not getting what he wants. And he's not being treated the way he thinks he should be treated based on his stature and the way he is. You know, and so when you do something like this, and we're going to find out that, you know, Naaman's going to have to go back to Elijah and, um, you know, that's a, that's a tough thing to do. You know, we we're talking about giving advice. You give good godly advice and people go off and do what they wanted anyway. And then it doesn't turn out too well. And they kind of have to come back and they have to humble themselves and, you know, say, you know what? You were right. Now you don't laud that over them. You don't beat them up with it. You know, and you don't bring out a big stick and say, I told you so. So that just makes it worth, uh, worse. But really what you have to see is by that, that their attitude changes. And that's what we're always looking for. In 1 Peter 5.5 5, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And going on in verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. That he may lift you up. And then in verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I know sometimes we've, we've probably gone through things like Naaman that we really wanted somebody to do something and um, we're just not sure what. 
And, you know, Naaman is looking for any option that he has. But here he's offered an option and immediately he discounts it. And he goes away angry and it's more because of his pride than anything else. And then I found this quote uh, by Dr. Donald Barnhouse. And I kind of want you to let this sink in for a moment. Uh, because what we're going to look at is, is Naaman had a plan. And it wasn't God's plan. But it says, everybody has the privilege of going to heaven God's way. And God's way is through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Or going to hell their own way. That's a, that's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. I really liked that when I read it. So here we see Naaman already decided. He had planned how he thought Elijah should take care of things. He wanted to do it his way instead of God's way. And God had been working on Naaman's heart, you know, and we can see that as we go through this. And first, you know, he's given hope when the Israelite girl, the slave girl, tells him, go see the prophet. And he ended up going to see the king who said, I can help you. You know, so there was a disconnect there. But so he's given hope, go see the prophet Elisha. Well, he goes and sees the king and the king says, well, I can't help you. And God then lets Elisha know what's going on and sends a messenger to come and see him and he can help him. So his hope is brought up again. But Elisha won't even come out to see him. Now, I don't, you know, if somebody says they can help you, but then you get there and they won't even come out and see you, it kind of leaves you with an empty feeling. It's like, wait a minute, am I, am I being pulled through, you know, jerked around here? What's going on? So Elisha won't even come out to see the mighty warrior. He's the second in command in the Syria. Why won't you come out? Naaman liked his plan better than what he'd been told because his mindset was that the water had healing powers. And how could the muddy Jordan do better than over the rivers that are in Damascus. And you know, I always look back and I say, when God's not in my plans, that's when I get in trouble. Um, We saw that with David when we go through. Every time David would pray and consult and pray to the Lord, things would go well. And when David did it under his own steam, things didn't go so well. And I find that in my own life, that when I go out and I make plans, but I don't consult God and I don't pray and I don't lift it up to him, things don't go quite the way they should. But there's still hope, Second Kings five thirteen and 14. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father. And this was kind of a term of endearment. And endearment. So it kind of indicates that he treated his servants and his men well. And they really wanted to see their master healed. So if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it. So if Elijah would have come out and said, I need you to jump through all these hoops. I need you to do all these things. We're going to have this great ceremony. We're going to wave it over the spots. It was like Naaman was ready for that. But he wasn't ready to go dip himself in the Jordan. And then the servants say, how much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And the King James in the New American Standard even says little child, um, which means that probably most cases they probably had very nice little skin. So the servants were able to convince Naaman. They had a, obviously a relationship with him that they could let him know that, you know, if you were willing to do some great thing, why aren't you willing to do this? So Naaman simply needed really just to obey God's word spoken through Elisha. So eventually he did. He followed the instructions. His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a little boy or a little ch- or young boy or a little child. Now, I know this wouldn't make Noxema of oil of, oil of Olay very happy because it really would put them out of business if we could all go, you know, uh, jump in the water and be healed because I don't know about you, but, um, I don't necessarily like the, uh, age spots, the calluses, the scars, uh, hair growing where it shouldn't grow. I mean, you're all those things as you grow older. It just, just a fact of life, but you know, 
there is there is a side note here because Naaman has been healed from leprosy. This is a pagan. This is someone who's not an Israelite, and um, Israel is just steeped in idol worship and sin, and false gods, and they have unrepentant hearts. And this is what we read in Luke four verse twenty seven. It says, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So here you have a pagan who's been cleansed. And the reason he was cleansed is because he followed the word of God. He trusted in him and he put his faith in him. And that's what we need to do sometimes. We need to humble ourselves, lose our pride, and listen and follow God's word. And that's what Naaman finally did. You know, we saw he stormed off in a huff. He got upset, but he stormed, but he did come around. So he found out it wasn't the water. It wasn't the ceremony. It wasn't any of that that healed him. It was his faith that he put in God. And we see from Luke chapter 4, none in Israel were healed because they wouldn't repent. They would not turn their hearts back to God. They wouldn't turn from their evil ways of worshiping false idols. 15 and 16. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except Israel. This is a pagan now. Now I know there's no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet, ans- the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So Elijah is turning down the gold and the silver and the clothes. And basically, Elijah wanted him to know that this couldn't be bought. It just could not be bought at any price. No ceremony, no hocus pocus, no purchase of a healing, no smacking on the back of the head, no sending you a thousand dollar faith promise check, none of that. The healing was done from God. And this is, a, this, uh, to me, it kind of puts the kibosh on the prosperity gospel that you hear, especially on TV. Uh, you know, if you can just send them a big enough faith promise check, you put your hand on that TV and you are miraculously going to be healed. God doesn't sell favor. God doesn't sell favor. And that's what Elisha is trying to tell Naaman is you can't buy this. You can't, you, there is nothing you can do that you can buy this. And though Naaman even insisted, Elisha said no. And again, this was just to show the faith in God. And, you know, that would kind of be tough. Somebody's going to give you all of this gold and silver and the clothes would have been nice clothes. These would have been very nice clothes. So again, this was to show faith in God is what was needed. Verses 17 and 18. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any god but the Lord. This is a pagan who has turned to God and the Israelites continue to turn their backs on God. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Remam to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Remam, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. So there's a couple of things here. You know, why would he want dirt from Israel? Well, what I've been able to look at and see is he said that, you know, most likely he intended to use this to to build an altar or something to the Lord back in Aram. And many believe that no God could be worshipped except in his own land or an altar built out of the dirt of that land. Um, so remember now, Naaman is a new believer. He's, he's very fresh in all this. But, all, but also, if he did this, when he went back to Syria or Aram, people would see this. They would see he was worshiping God and so that in itself would be a testimony to the people there and secondly he requested that it be understood that when he accompanied the king to worship Rimmon that he would be worshiping the one true God but 
he really needed to go through and, and do this because I'm sure there was in the back of his mind that if he didn't go with the king, which would have been part of his responsibility, he could be put to death. But we have to remember, Naaman is new. And as a new believer, we're not miraculously just infused with the word of God. And we're going to make mistakes. Do we make mistakes today? Yes. Yes, we do. And so um, we do know, though, that Naaman came to know the one true God. And he wanted to worship the one true God. And this is Elisha's response in Second Kings 5. In the first part of that verse, it says, go in peace, Elisha said. Now, Elisha was not approving. He was not lecturing Naaman at this point. However, he did say go in peace was kind of a a traditional blessing on his upcoming journey back to his homeland. So we see Naaman has provided a solution from a slave girl. He travels to Israel to the king who can help him. And the king of Israel thinks it's a trick. But God lets Elisha know what's happening and the plan for Naaman. Naaman's humbled and his heart is turned to the one true God. And now he'd be going back to his pagan country and be in a position. Because remember, he's like second in command to share what he knows about the one true God. Galatians 3, 6 through 9 says, Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And this is before the law. And even in the Old Testament, God was looking for your heart. He wanted your heart to turn to him. Now, unfortunately, we got to turn to a sad part of the chapter. And Elisha's right-hand man, Gehazi. And like I said, um, Gehazi was Elisha's right-hand man. And he served with Elisha. And in some sense, he was kind of being mentored by the prophet. And in the last part of verse 19 and verse 20, it says, After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, and that was his first problem, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman the Aramean. By not accepting from him what he brought, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So again, we see man's plan enter the scene rather than following God's plan. Elisha was following God's plan. He didn't want the gifts. He didn't want the money because he knew that it would affect things. And Gehazi just had convinced himself that this was just going to be okay. Because you've got to watch that line. It says, you know, Gehazi said to himself. So he's making his own plan. Verses 21 and 23. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. And so that in itself was, you know, he obviously had to know who Gehazi was. And he even gets down off his, his, um, his chariot. And he's looking to see, is everything okay? So let's continue. Everything's all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me. Two young men from the company of the prophets had just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, by all means, take two talents, 150 pounds, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing, and he gave them to his two servants, and they carried him ahead of a Gehazi. So Gehazi thinks Naaman needs to pay up, that Elijah doesn't know what he's talking about. How could he let all this money and all these clothes go back to Syria? But again, we're looking at man's plan and not God's plan. You know, God's already spoken through the prophet Elijah. So here Gehazi knows the one true God who he's to be serving, he sees what God has done through Elijah, not only with Naaman, but at other times that we talked about. And he finds it easily just to lie. And he even puts it on his master. My master said, Gehazi let the greed overtake him. 
this lie could do a lot more harm than he realized. And, you know, this would indicate that Elisha was selling his healing. That's what Elisha was trying to get away from. You know, your money didn't do this. God did this. So this could shed a different light on Elijah. Just, you know, since Gehazi indicated his master sent him. And it would actually give a different opinion about God. That God could be bought. So the sin of lying and greed could lead to further sin. And we're going to see that in verse 24. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. And he sent the men away and they left. So Gehazi thinks he can hide his sin. Is that possible? No. Proverbs 28:13, if you hide your sins, you will not succeed. If you confess and reject them, you will receive mercy. So unfortunately, Gehazi did not confess and change his heart. He makes it worse, and he makes it really bad. 25 and 26. Then he went in, stood before his master, Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi, Elijah asked. Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. So here we have another lie, and he lies to the man of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I say, my mom raised six kids. And when I walked in the house and she said, what have you been up to? I already knew she knew. There was no doubt about it. It was, I better come clean or I was in trouble, you know. And I always swear, I, and I'm sure some of you young folks know, your moms have eyes in the back of their heads. They always seem to know what's going on. But I know when I'd walk into the house and she would just say, what have you been up to? I was in trouble. I might as well just go get the belt. I mean, it was, because she didn't wait till dad got home. She took care of stuff herself. So, <laughs> I had a guy that worked for me one time and, um, you know, Field salespeople, you just got to trust them. They're out there on their own. They set their schedules. And uh, there was this one gentleman that I needed to talk to him. It was on a Friday afternoon. I needed to talk to him. And so I looked at his calendar, and he was supposed to be at a certain customer. Well, I texted him first and didn't hear back from him for some time. So I picked up the phone, and I called the customer. And I said, you know, if possible, can I, can I speak to my employee? And... They go, well, he's not here. In fact, he hasn't even been here. I said, oh, okay. Well, this is Friday. Monday morning rolls around. I call him into my office and said, oh, so how'd the appointment go on Friday? He tells this tale. I mean, I finally had to stop him because I felt so guilty. I had to stop him and just say, all right, look, I know you weren't there, you know, and what happened? He said, oh, I just got tired and blew the rest of the day off. Now, how much trust? I mean, I trust people until they give me a reason not to. Now, this employee had given me a reason not to trust him. So he got a lot more coaching calls in the future than the rest of my sales employees. So, which means those are (laughs) ride-alongs. So, verse 26. But Elijah said to him, and this this is like mom speaking, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Oops. I mean, really, you're going to lie to Elisha? I mean, come on. Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, men, servants, and maidens? Elisha's telling him, this is not done for money. This was a testimony to the one true God. Naaman can be a great witness to what God can do. And now Gehazi's tainted it. Verse 27, Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and he was leprous, as white as snow. Now you remember, we were reading the scripture, it says that Naaman had spots. But here it says that Gehazi was white as snow. So now what do we see? Being an Israelite, he's going to have to live outside the city. He's unclean. He's lost his ministry. And that's what we really need to be careful about. We need to consider when we sin, what do we do? What's that, what does that do to our testimony? 
we need to confess it. We need to ask for forgiveness and stay true to God because God is, will forgive us. But we need to be careful what we do because it can destroy our testimony. It can destroy our ministry. So while this chapter kind of ends on a sad note, there's some great things. We see a pagan come to know the one true God, and he's going to be able to take this faith back to his country. You know, God wants to pour out his blessing on Israel, but they just refuse to turn back to him. But instead, they worship Baal. So we see a pagan come to know the one true God, but Israel continues to turn their back on God. And in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he'll make your path straight. So what does it take to share your faith? The hope that's in you, Jesus Christ, this young slave girl, she had faith that Elisha could heal the second in command in Syria. So she just spoke it. She spoke what she believed in. And if we have confidence that God will, over, will take care of us, God will prepare the hearts of people that need to hear. So when that opportunity presents itself, when someone asks, they might even, I mean, I've had a lady I worked with years ago, we were coming back from a sales appointment and she just looked over at me and she says, well, you go to church. What's all this Jesus thing about? We parked, we turned off the car, and we talked. What if I said, you know what? I got to go update Salesforce. I don't have time for this. When that opportunity presents itself, the Holy Spirit will give you the words you need to talk to that person. You need to take the responsibility and share it. Because you might be surprised. God's, if that person is that forthright, God has been preparing that person just like he prepared Naaman. He's prepared their heart. And so my question is, if that opportunity is presented to you, who are you to say, not today? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you what we see through Elisha, the man of God, and that Naaman, finally, he humbles himself. And he turns to you, a pagan. That even though he's in a country that is just steeped in idolatry and false gods and everything that's going on, that he comes to know you, you, the one true God. And God, that's our prayer, that you use us. That when those opportunities come before us, that we seize those opportunities. And we trust that you will give us the right words to say. So we thank and praise you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.